0: Today I'm joined by Glenn Williams, who is a former police officer with 26 years experience in patrol investigations and training. Glenn is also a trainer who also teaches Bridging the Gap, which is an inside look at communications and relations for public safety personnel. He is also the founder of Glenn Williams Consulting, which focuses on communications and relations uh, to help reduce PTSD. Divorce and Suicide for Public Safety Personnel. Glenn, thank you so much for taking out the time to join us today. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and where you are at the moment right now?
1: Well, as you mentioned, I was a police officer and a detective for 26 years. Um, During that time, I was a firearms instructor um, and a police and evidence diving instructor and I worked on some dive teams Um, during that time I developed PTSD and I didn't handle it very well and ended up divorced. um, After some deep soul searching and some looking outside the box I was able to work through a lot of those issues and I I now travel and I teach uh, police departments and even uh, health workers and anybody that's got experienced trauma um, to um, ways to work through that so that I can help reduce divorce and help reduce suicide. And then I'm also the author of the book, Bridging the Gap, which addresses these same issues.
0: Thank you, Glenn, for sharing your valuable insights and experiences. You touched upon um, PTSD, which you also suffered from. Can you tell us, uh, from your perspective, as a retired police officer, what experiences led to that? Um,
1: There there were numerous experiences, and I developed what they call cumulative PTSD. There wasn't any one incident, but a number of incidents. Uh, For example, um, kids are always the hardest. And I will cry when I talk about this, but that's okay because we are emotional. <sighs> um, I got a call one morning, 6.30 in the morning. I just barely showed up for work and there was a child missing. I I went through um, over to the apartment complex where that child was missing. And as I pulled in, there's a big fountain in that parking area, but it was filled with soap suds. Some teenagers had put soap in, and it was eight, ten feet off the ground and covering out on the street. Couldn't even see the fountain or the water. And then I went over to the uh, child's house, um apartment, and mom and dad actually called him Little Houdini. He was a three-year-old boy, but he was an escape artist. And they would actually put extra locks on the door to keep him in, and it did not work. Um we searched the apartment because 80% of the time that's where missing children are found, is in their own home. And then we talked to mom and dad, found out where his friends were, where his favorite playground was, where the different things were that he liked to do. And we'd searched and searched. And after about 45 minutes of searching, there were four or five of us searching the area. Um, we were standing in the parking lot by that fountain. And as we were standing there, a little breeze came up. And it just split some of the bubbles, and we saw a foot in the water and um, we grabbed the child out I did c p r on him until um fire department got there, and they took over the medical treatment and unfortunately, well, fortunately, I kept everything together. I got mom and dad lined up, they went up to the children's hospital um in the ambulance with the child. I made sure that neighbors were there to help out and do things, and then I was standing there um and all of us, we kind of got word that the uh, child had not made it. Even everything that we did, he'd not made it. And all of us just kind of
2: stood there, and I could just see everybody, my, and I could feel my shoulders sag and my head drop. Because that hurt. We weren't able to save him. I was a 17-year officer at that time, and... I actually had
1: a good leader that day. He came over and he said, looked at me, and it was my call, so I had to do all the paperwork and everything. And he looked at me and he says, are you okay, brother?
2: And after 17 years, for the first time in my life, I admitted I was not okay. And he told me, go take care of yourself. And I actually drove three or four blocks away,
1: and I found a church parking lot. And I just pulled in there and I backed up against the wall
2: and sat there and just cried my eyes out for an hour. Then I went back to the office and took care of my reports. And it's incidents like that
1: that just build up over the years and that create trauma for us. I mean, if we did everything we could, I was angry at myself for not marching in through those bubbles and searching that water first. Would that have made a difference? I don't know. Um, I was angry at the kids that had put the bubbles in, made it impossible to see the place. And I was angry at life for
2: a long time after that. Because this kid, need, he didn't deserve it. I didn't understand any of
1: it. And it took me a while to work my way through that one, but at least I had admitted there was a problem that I wasn't doing okay. And was able to start the process of working through, which then led to working through, uh, I don't know how many other experiences. Um, you know, going through a door when shots are being fired, um, having a car trying to run me down, and things like that are, uh, that had happened over the years and just worked their way up through things until
2: it was difficult to deal with things. And I didn't share a lot of those things with anybody. I didn't tell my wife at the time and I just I just couldn't do it at that time.
0: Glenn, I'm lost for words. I think you have been an incredibly strong and brave person for a very very long time and it's it's shocking, you know, that loss of little life. Um and I'm very sorry to hear I'm very sorry to hear about what happened to that child. I'm sorry that you had to experience that. And um, and thank you so much, you know, for sharing that with all honesty um, because it's unfortunate that incidences like that happen and there's so little support. There's so little support even now uh, for police officers that are having to deal with um, tra- tra- trauma on a daily basis, you know, you mentioned about that particular incidence, which is harrowing for everybody that's connected to that child's life. And especially you, because like you said, you had to also get the paperwork done. You still had to, you know, fulfill that role whilst dealing as a human being, whilst reacting to this great sorrow, to this great loss of life. Um, and it's, uh, it's incredibly traumatic. And then you mentioned, you know, when you were nearly sort of run over, and other experiences that you, as a human being, had to deal with. Because before you're a police officer, you are also a human. Um, In terms of support, uh, and I and I talk about this on an international scale. In terms of support for police officers, um, I mean, mental well-being support, psychological support. What do you think the current situation is? Is there support? Because from the way things seem, there seems to be hardly any support. Whereas if you look at psychiatrists and psychologists that are working in hospitals, even they are afforded therapy so that they're able to function in their jobs. But police officers who are dealing with, you know, loss of lives, who are dealing with high-impact crime, who are dealing with trauma, not just on a daily basis, but almost on an hourly basis, traumatic, severely traumatic events, and at the same time expected to fulfill their roles and obligations in a very logical way when they are not able to cope as humans, as is a natural reaction, you know, as is a human reaction to trauma, so I wanted to ask you, what is the situation um, for police officers? Are they getting support? And if not, what do you think? How do you think the system could be improved?
1: Back then, there was no support. Um, in fact, if you went and asked or talked to a psychologist, very likely would be found unfit for duty and fired. Um, so. Nobody shared anything. Officers um, made up for that by gathering on their own and sharing things back and forth with each other, um, usually over a few drinks or a couple beers or whatever. Um, and that made it possible for them to sort of cope, but that wasn't enough. And now, Back in the, when was it? Probably the late 90s, I'm guessing. I don't know the exact time, but they started bringing up peer support teams, which were um, officers that had been trained to go talk to other officers. But the problem was a lot of people did not trust them because they were assigned by the leadership of the department. And if some of the leadership of the department found out some of these things, sometimes the same thing happened, you were fired. Um, It's getting better now. Um, peer support is more trusted than it was back then, and again i did twenty six years and i 've been retired for about six years now, so we 're talking thirty years ago. Um, now things are getting better, and the there are resources that are available. The problem is a lot of people don't know about them, and that 's one reason at the end of my book, I included a um, chapter summary of resources available, and since i my book uh, was published in December, but the publisher had it six months or eight months before that. Um, so in the last year and a half, uh, resources have improved even more. Um, it's the, my message is it's okay to talk about this stuff. You've got to talk about it or it will eat you alive. I used to have three, four nightmares a month and now I have maybe one or two a year and so things are getting better and it's all because i was able to open up and start talking about what was bothering me and another purpose that i had was <laughs> i remember going back through the academy and they had us bring our spouse in for a four-hour training and they said you've got to talk to your spouse the divorce rate's extremely high in law enforcement um, but you've got to talk to your spouse. Now there's going to be things you can't talk about because there's an ongoing investigation or things you don't want to talk about because they're going to be horrific, but you've got to keep the communications open. And they, but they never told us how. We walked out after that four hours with looking at each other going, what was that? Um, how do we do this? Well, I taught myself how. I didn't figure it out until I'd been an officer for about 25 years. But I finally figured it out, and that's one of the other things I share in my training and in my book, is how to take a traumatic event, rephrase it so it can be safely shared with somebody without traumatizing them. And that's the biggest issue today is that I see in law enforcement, is we're sending people that are in trauma out to deal with citizens that are in trauma. And is there any wonder there's so many problems now, because... um when you're suffering from trauma, how do you respond? A lot of people respond with being defensive or anger, um, trying to cover up and hide those feelings that are bubbling up underneath the surface. And that does not work when you're having an interaction, and it does not work with communication, and it does not work with any type of relationship. Um, that's one thing we get to fix. But like I say now, it's okay to go talk to a psychologist or psychiatrist Um, to the point but I see a lot of real old time people in the leadership positions now and some of them still have that attitude that it's not okay and so there's a lot of caution on what law enforcement can use the resources are becoming more and more
2: available Um, now we just have to convince guys that it's okay to go use them
0: Thank you so much Glenn for sharing those insights I think it's opened the door to further conversations you know, by sharing your experiences, by having these sort of discussions, it's allowing other people to also come forward and say, well actually I've gone through that and you'd be surprised, you know, because there is unfortunately this culture where you get penalised for getting support you know, there's a stigma uh, for getting support uh, for saying that yes you are vulnerable because things are logged things are recorded, they can be Um, brought up later on are you fit to practice whereas actually it's a sign of strength to say right now you know I'm having a breakdown or right now I'm going through this this is the support that I need because that shows that the person has insight and that they're able to you know ask for support but unfortunately at times there is still that stigma you know we you touched upon different things about the different types of support and it's really interesting you mentioned about trauma breeding trauma and sometimes the police officers being defensive. And obviously, because it's a public facing role and these officers that have rightly, you know, they have a right to have those feelings. They have a right to experience those emotions because it would be un in inhuman not to do so. You know, not we are human, we react, you know, we react biologically, we react physically. We react psychologically, you know, so we react, we have an inbuilt system of reactions, you know, the chemical reactions in our body keep us alive. So, you know, the the psychological, the way we're wired, we are allowed to react and it's fine. Um, but could it be said that sometimes there is a lack of empathy um, from police officers because they're so traumatized, they're just completely shut down, so sometimes when they are in these public facing roles, because they're not getting the support that they need, then they're not able to, at times, relate to victims. Because um, even when we look at statistics, um, now I'm, I'm talking about the UK more. So when they talk about, you know, the low prosecution rate in certain uh, types of crime, like domestic violence, when you have the victims speaking out, a lot of the times, there's a saying this that they said we feel like we've been brushed aside. we feel like you know nobody's taking our concerns on board, and uh sometimes people are murdered as well. you know you hear about people raising concerns, we're worried, we're being stalked, we're being harassed, and then Something awful happens and then an inquiry takes place and then you see all those red signals and warning signs there. So I'd want to talk about that lack of empathy that's growing in society. Um, and you know, what, how do you think we can tackle that? And like you said, trauma breeds trauma. That could be one of the causes for that lack of empathy. What else do you think, you know, is kind of, uh, contributing towards it?
1: Absolutely, um, trauma adds to that. Part of it, I know, on the law enforcement side is when we see murders and we see um, things that are just horrific, then when we, just an example, I go home and my son cuts his hand and, it, you know, I look at it and kind of have a hard time thinking, okay, that's, that's not good, but it's really nothing compared to the things I just got done seeing at work. Um, and so that we lose that 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 touch, we bury that ability to um, empathize because many people see that as a weakness. The biggest part to get over that is going to be communication we've got to be able to be open we and we get we become afraid to make ourselves vulnerable because I can't show my feelings. You know, the movies portray officers as like they're robots, and they just can go do anything and bust through walls. And and you know, I just laugh. I can't go to a law enforcement movie because <laughs> it's a joke. But that's how it's portrayed, and a lot of people actually believe that. So they don't think officers have feelings because we are trained to hide those while we're at the scene. Um, and if we take that training too far, then we hide those all the time. And that then shows us a lack of empathy. But in reality, deep down, we're feeling it. We just are not, sometimes it, it, sometimes it just doesn't work to show it um, in the situation. We have to take control. We have to be in charge. We have to be tough. And sometimes, so it becomes harder and harder to let those feelings or emotions or that empathy out. Um, now in today's world, and I can only speak really from the U.S. right now because that's where I'm at, um, with the way many of these groups are attacking the police, it becomes even, um, they start shielding themselves and bearing those feelings even more. And it's going to be harder and harder to empathize with somebody that's putting you down or cutting your funds or doing away with your department or calling you a, a murderer when you've never had any incident that's even close. Um, and so that's where those defensive walls start to build. The biggest thing is we've got to open up that communication, open, honest communication um, on both sides
2: and allow those walls to drop so that we are human again, because no matter how much we hide it, we're still human.
0: That's incredibly um, meaningful, Glenn, what you've just said, you know, and I'll touch upon some of those themes that you've raised, you know, that societal perception that officers are like robots. Um, you know, they can do anything, they're superheroes, they don't have feelings. And it's unfortunate, but at times there is that perception, um, you know, I mean, there's experiments, psychological experiments. Um, done in terms of authority and perception. I think there's a very famous one in Stanford as well of, of, of about that about that perception of authority. Um, however, you know, the police officers, the law enforcement, it is a public-facing role, and there is a lot of angst as well. There's a lot of public anger at times. You know, we see certain movements. Um, where it's uh, us against them mentality, and us is the public, and them is the police officers. And you know, when we're talking about, say, even a line of police officers, each one of them is an individual. You know, just because they're working in a uh, law enforcement does not take away their individuality away from them. You know, their distinct features of their character and their personalities. But unfortunately, certain societal and media perceptions are, that's it. You know, they're not human, they're uniforms and guns and, you know, and that's it. So I want to ask, uh, because you have an incredibly, um, you know, you have a very good suggestion of that communication. How can we facilitate practically that communication between all the stakeholders? between the law enforcement, between the public, between the people making the policies, how can that be systematically implemented so that it does make a difference?
1: Again, we've got to get rid of the walls. And part of that means setting aside what our stake is and getting down to being human again with each other. Um, I, I've heard so many discussions and yet and it's that um, from different groups and different people, and as long as we are holding on to our perception, there's not it, we can't change. We, it, we can't change. Um, if if I have this and I'm being defensive about this, then I'm not going to shift where I'm at. And it, when you've got both sides that are defending a thing, again, it's got to be an open, honest discussion. It can't be an argument. It can't be um, me trying to prove a point. And that's when I hear these discussions, everybody's trying to prove a point until we give up that point to prove we can't get to being open and honest communication. Um, I can, I can meet somebody that I have a disagreement with. And if I harbor that disagreement in the back of my mind, I'm not being open to what they are saying. And I'm not being open to what I'm saying to them. I'm, I, we, so we've got to get rid of the agenda and get down to brass tacks, which is being open, honest, and human. And then on the human level, we can then work out to solve those issues, but we've got to build that relationship first. Um, and I, I don't see anybody trying to build relationships. That's, that's the issue I see. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: I mean, you've hit the nail on the head, you know, when you've talked about the trust, when you've talked about people trying to prove a point and not building relationships. Because of that sort of mistrust, because people are uh, defensive, and I think when you said proving a point, that word prosecution came came to mind, you know, uh, going to court, and, you know, there's always this element of trying to prove who needs to be prosecuted, who needs to be defended, uh, et cetera. Um I wanted to touch, link this back to now because we started off talking about how trauma is affecting law enforcement and law enforcement, you know, um, families as well. If you can tell us a little bit about the work that you do currently and the systems that you are putting into place and what kind of an impact is that having?
1: I travel around and teach. and Unfortunately, COVID canceled everything for two years. Um, So I'm getting things rebuilt again. Um, What I talk about in mine is some of my journey, because that's what I can relate to. And that's what I know uh, in the hopes that some others will do some of the same things um, or not do the same stupid things that I did. Um, Communication, again, is the key for me. Um, But in order to get that communication, I had to take a very hard, self-accountable look at me. And I had to change my perceptions of things. Um, I, had, I opened up and being vulnerable is not a weakness. As we open up and allow ourselves to be seen, then others will open up and allow us to see them. And that's part of getting back to that human relationship. Um, as I look at a different perspective, um, I discovered of uh, things that were way outside the box um and I'll be honest, law enforcement puts a very small box around it, ourselves, but I started looking at um trying things um I discovered that holistic things work better than medication or as well as um you know and I went through the whole thing. I got divorced, and while I was divorced the second time I'm a slow learner, I tried it twice, but I didn't change me um I was living up in my cabin in the mountains, and I had the habit, I had to get up at 3.30 to go to work because I had a 57-mile drive to get to work. Um, I'd go to work, I'd get off work, and I'd drive 57 miles home, and I'd just crawl in the door, exhausted, and I'd make dinner, and I'd pour myself a drink. Now, I only had two drinks a night, but they were 32 ounces each, so I started drinking too much. And that's not uncommon with people in trauma. After a few months of that, I suddenly woke up and looked at myself in the mirror one day, uh, on a day off, and I thought, man, what are you doing? The only life you're ruining is your own. And I at least had the awareness to figure that out. And so I changed what I did. We have to change the habits we're in. People are creatures of habit. And I was comfortable coming home, drinking, crashing, and you know, I was numb. I didn't feel any pain. I didn't feel any feelings when I was drinking, and that was part of the the process. But then I got through looking at it, going, "Okay, I've got to deal with this." Um, so I changed my habit and I started throwing my gym bag in my car because I was 15 miles from the nearest town. And instead of driving right home, I'd stop at the gym on the way in, on the way home, and I'd get my a workout in. Then I'd go home and make a nice, a d- decent meal. And I'd go to bed if I was working the next day, or if I wasn't, then I'd prepare for what I was going to do around my place. Uh, i changed change my habits. Um, I started going for walks. Nature is a huge healer. And these are all things that I start sharing with people now, um, that things that we just take for granted can be healing, but they're outside our normal box. We have to shift our habits. And that's the, that's the big issue there. Um, What I've also discovered, though, especially after COVID, everybody has trauma in their life. Not just law enforcement, not just fire and public safety, but everybody has trauma. And my son and I've had this discussion. He was blown up in Afghanistan, and his stories are horrendous. He almost got blown up by rockets twice. I mean, he finally got injured with an IED. Um, I knew, and he was in three, two or three firefights every day. Um, there's definitely trauma and the stories are, holy cow, way worse than anything I saw. Now me almost getting run down, um, having to, um, almost shoot people, um, not being able to save the child. Those are horrendous stories. Now the housewife up the street, she has her dog and her dog's 12 years old, been with her since he was a pup and he runs out and gets hit by a, a car and killed, that's traumatic for her. So here's the question: whose trauma is worse? After discussion with my son, we came to the realization that all the trauma, the end result, is the same. The instigating events aren't dramatic. But all the trauma is the same. So how do we work through that? First, I've got to find somebody to talk with. Have to, um, whether that be a coworker or, or in law enforcement, peer support, or whether you go find a psychologist or somebody to talk to. I finally, after one incident, um, found a psychologist. It took me a few months, and I didn't trust my department at the time. Um, so I found it on my own, separate and everything, and and um, nobody knew. But I went and talked, and it took me a few months, but I finally worked my way through that. Um which that was kind of the dam breaking. And that led to more and more until I finally was able to start working through each and every incident. Um, that had, that was ca- causing me issues. Um, <clears throat> so the, the, the secret on that one was I had to open up me. Um, I went through some personal enhancement training that got me back in touch with who I am. I had begun, be, I had become, I'm a cop. That's what I do. I'm a cop. And I wasn't what I did. It was who I was. And in reality, it wasn't. I had forgotten the human part of me for a long time, where I had blocked it out so I wouldn't feel pain. So we have to get back in touch with ourselves first. And that's where we start the shift. And our lives is with us. And then that ripples out to our families. And then that ripples out to our communities. And then the whole shift starts to happen.
0: I wanted to ask you, the job of a police officer is to ensure that everybody is feeling safe, that they are well in the community and that they're not afraid of crime. What is the sense of safety for those that work in law enforcement? How do you feel? Because after dealing with so much trauma, where is that sense of safety for those that work in law enforcement?
1: That's part of the problem. Um, I'm not sure there really is a sense of safety, especially nowadays. Um, I know when I was working, our primary goal, and we were taught this from day one, our primary goal is to go home safe at the end of the day, which that puts in our mind as we go to work that something is going to happen and everybody's dangerous, and that, I think, is one of the problems with that mindset. Um, In fact, I talk about this in my class. Um, That mindset sets an us-versus-them mentality, and in reality, it shouldn't be. Um, but officers go out, and then the more things happen, I mean, officers are being killed right and left right now because of the change in society um, and in society's attitude towards the police, and that's a two-way street. Some of the police create that problem, but some of the um, society takes advantage of that, and it's almost open season now, so that I'm going to go home safe at the end of the day as my primary goal is coming back in focus, which again, set that us versus them mentality. I, I challenge people to change that goal and make it, I'm going to make a difference in somebody's life today rather than I'm going to go home safe at the end of the day, because I can make a difference in somebody's life. And that might even be my own life um, by just doing one thing differently. And by being a little more vulnerable, um, I had one guy, when I, I worked for transit um, my last six years, and one of our duties was checking tickets on the train, and it became a numbers game. The more people you check, the more people without tickets you find, the more people without tickets you find, the more criminal checks you do, and the more criminal checks you do, the more um, warrants you find, and the more times you take people to jail. And so I was just rolling through, tickets please, tickets please, thank you, thank you, thank you, and rolling through as fast as I could to check as many people as I could. When I started changing me, I stopped doing that. On one occasion, let me go back. Um, on one occasion, I had a guy that didn't have a ticket. I got him off on the platform of the train station. I'm by myself. He's a big guy, probably about 6'3", 6'2", 6'3", maybe 280 pounds. And I luckily, I had a good dispatch that day that recognized I knew he was not telling me the truth on who he was. But a dispatcher put it together, got him checked, and she let me know that he had warrants for aggravated assault on a police officer. That's assault with a deadly weapon. And so I I was stalling, trying to get somebody there to help me out because this guy's a lot bigger than me. And finally, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't stall anymore. And I told him he's under arrest. And then the fight was on. Everything that I had on me was scattered. My citation book, my um, cell phone, my work cell phone, my work scanner, uh, my sunglasses. I mean, anything that wasn't strapped down four times went flying. And then he um, started to run. I chased him for about a half a block, and I knew he's a big guy. Um, He wasn't going to run very far. So when he started to turn around, I tackled him from behind. I'd already figured out I did not want to be in front of him because he's bigger than I am. If he hit me with one of those big paws, it was going to hurt me. And if he got his arm wrapped around me, he was going to crush me. So I tackled him from behind, and I hung on for all I was worth until I got help there and were able to take him into custody. That was because I was going through tickets, please, tickets, please, tickets, please. There was no connection there whatsoever. About a year and a half later, I had another incident with a guy on a train, no ticket. Only this time I had changed the way I did things, and I would actually stop, and I'd look people in the eye and say, thank you, and have a nice day, and I'd work my way through. And I'm talking to him about his ticket. And he looked at me and he said, you're making this hard. And I said, okay, that's kind of a weird statement. I didn't say that, but I'm thinking kind of a weird statement. I'm making what hard? He goes, you're just being way too nice. And I looked at him and I'm conversing with him, having a little bit of a connection there. And he said, I said, why do you say that?
2: And he says, I was going to kill a cop today and hopefully die doing it. I work my way behind him, and I'm talking to him the whole time. I
1: said, please keep your hands on your knees, and I don't want to have to hurt you, Um, and let's get through this, okay? And I ended up taking a knife that was so sharp I was afraid to put it in my pants pocket because I thought it'd cut through, and then he also had a sharpened screwdriver on him. And uh, we got him the help he needed. He needed some mental help, and that was obvious because of uh, saying he wanted to die doing it. Um, About a year and a half later, he went down to another state to a
2: facility, um, got back on his meds, got everything taken care of. And about a year and a half later, he ran into my sergeant on the train and he says, hey, tell Williams, thank you for saving my life. Because I made myself a little vulnerable because I slowed down and actually talked to this man like he was a human being, I did not get stabbed that day. Because he could have. And by making ourselves just a little vulnerable,
1: we can make a change in our life and, the other, and other people's lives. Well,
0: things could have been as to how they turned out to be because of your kindness. Because of your compassion, because you were looking people in the eye and you were saying thank you and you were speaking to them. And because of, again, that human empathy, you know, that human connection. And like you said, the communication, the vulnerability, um, you know, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. Um, I wanted to thank you, you know, for sharing your insights and your experiences, um, it's some, it's a perspective that I haven't come across, you know, and I'm sure it's a perspective that needs to be heard a lot more, that needs to be more openly discussed, that requires more awareness. Um, turning towards the future, what do you think could be done to improve things in terms of, you know, um, that well-being support? In terms of really making those meaningful, systematic changes, um, what what do you think could be that future outlook?
1: There is a lot starting to be done, and I have connected with so many people I had no idea were even out there, um, that are on the same page that I am on the wellness for officers. And wellness for ofteners then translates over to wellness for our communities. Um, you know, we make that change one person at a time, start with ourselves. Um, there are trainings that are available, similar to the one that I do, um, to get that word out there. And I've discovered it's a ripple effect. We change the world one person at a time. Um, and as we get people to shift their focus just a little bit, then that increases the well being of their family. And as the well-being of the family again, i would mentioned this earlier. It dribbles out then to our neighborhood and then to our community, and through until everybody is um, on a similar path, or we're not—we're all on our own path, but on a similar relationship, so that we can be open and honest and vulnerable with each other without fear. Um, it's for law enforcement. It, the things are shifting, but slowly but surely. I mean. These type A personalities want to go to all the tactical things, but when the biggest thing that we're afraid of, and most people are afraid of, is looking inside ourselves, and that's where the change gets to start. Um, if we can get the leadership in on that. Um, I had one training I did in Illinois. Um, the whole sp- police chief and his staff were there, and that was phenomenal. Uh, because that's where, in the police departments, the change starts. It'll, we can change one person at the bottom, one person at the bottom, a little bit here and there. But if we can get the people at the top to recognize the differences, then that will
2: trickle down much faster. And In fact, it will be a flood going down versus the trickle going up from the bottom.